Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. So this weekend, just for the, the, uh, the Sunday visitors, we've been looking at James, and James is wisdom to help us with our double-mindedness. We've learnt that every Christian is double-minded. Um, James is there to help us. First thing he told us was that we've got to learn um, to embrace our trials. Okay, You're not going to avoid trials. Learn to embrace them, learn from them. You'll grow faith. The second thing uh, we saw yesterday, James knows we're going to fail. We all fail. Everyone's going to fail. James failed. He once thought Jesus was mad. And then he became a believer in Jesus. We all fail. So James told us that with God there's always more grace. So you keep turning back and keep turning back and keep turning back to God. There's always more grace when you fail, right? Um, <clears throat> today, the, this last passage, James really gets us to think about what it means to be a community of believers and how we live and work together. We're all God's refugees. We're living in a place that's not our home. What is it like to be a Christian as part of a community? Now, just I just want to ask a bit of a, a bit of dialogue here. Um, there, there are descriptions in the New Testament for the believer, for the Christian, for the church. All right? You, can you think of any? I want you to just tell me, the metaphors, the descriptions, the way the Christian or the church is described. Just what was that? Hands and feet. Hands and feet so part of the body. Yep. So we're we're part of a body. Yep. Body. What was that? Body of Christ. Yep. Body. What else? Vine in the branches. Yep. Pride. Oh, the bride, the bride of Christ. Yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah, bride of Christ, yep, yep, okay. Soul of the earth, didn't think of that one. Uh, we're, we're described as the temple of God. Um, we're described as, we just sang it, the holy nation. Uh, we are the priesthood. Now, something you'll notice about all of those, I'll tell you another one, uh, is uh, end of Ephesians, the armour of God. Now, I mentioned that one for a reason. So there's something you'll notice about all of those. Can I ask you, can you think of any description of the Christian in the New Testament that describes you as an individual who stands alone? Yeah, we we care. There's none. There's none. The reason I mentioned the armour at the end of Ephesians, have you ever heard the kids talk? You know, put on the armour of God and then you can stand alone. No, no, no. As you read through the, the armour of, of uh, the gospel armour, it talks about you, 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 you. Um, in Greek, they are all plural yous. So it's saying that you as a body put on the armour together. You fight together. Um, we all know that a lone soldier is a dead soldier. All right? So in this last chapter, James is wanting us to um, understand that we're part of a community. 
Individualism is the mood of our age. A new thing that's that's happening in our in our in the last ten years or so is a thing called social anxiety. Now, some of you may have social anxiety. It's the fear of being with people, right? Um, it's the mood of our age, uh, and it is. It's no good for the Christian life. Have you ever been to a restaurant? You're sitting there, and there's a couple over there or a family. What are they all doing? They're all on their phones. Or doing life on their own. Um, if you're a Christian, you're part of a body, you're part of the family of God. This last chapter in James is about how we each help one another. Not to want, or if we wander off the straight and narrow. Um, his last bit of wisdom to us, and this is the, what I called my talk, is that we must patiently and prayerfully persevere together all right that's what this last chapter is about that we patiently prayerfully persevere together james is concerned for the believer who wanders from the truth verse 19 look look at verse 19 if anyone should wander from the truth and let's be honest his concern is well founded isn't it all right can any do you any of you know someone who was once a keen Christian and is now nowhere to be seen in, in the church? Yeah? I can think of far too many. Are you, con- are you concerned about someone you know who you think might be wandering? Might be someone here, someone back at church. Someone, are you concerned? You've been looking and listening and you think, you know, you, you're starting to wander, mate. Um, do you know someone who's just weary? Christian life's hard, just tired. Um, need, I tell you what, COVID tested us all that, didn't it? Needs encouragement. And maybe, just maybe, one of those might describe you. Anyone weary in the Christian life? Starting to wander, you know? Or... No one knows it here, but you're dabbling in sin, starting to wander. Well, James says that we must patiently um, persevere, prayerfully persevere together. They're the three points of my talk if you're into taking notes. So let's think about patience. Patience. James says that patience is the vital is vital for the Christian. Verse 7 Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. So I can ask you, are you patient? Maybe I shouldn't ask you, I should ask the person beside you. Is that person patient? What would others say? Can I say, if you are a patient person in our culture, you're doing really well. Because you know what our culture teaches us? It teaches us impatient like I said yesterday, we have micro, microwaves and smartphones because we don't have to wait. I read this uh, article entitled, get it, Impatience is a Virtue. Impatience is a Virtue. And it said, this is, says brands that, you know, companies must invest in, the, in micro moments. 
and offer tailored on-demand services. They must exist in the micro-moment of the right-now consumer. They must be there, be quick, be useful for a mobile and self-interested society. <laughs> That's our society. So if you're a patient person, you're going pretty good, right? Ours is an increasingly impatient culture and it rubs off on us. So we'll have to be constantly readjusting our mindset when it comes to following our, get it, eternal patient Lord. Patience and eternity. Did you notice the backdrop? Verse 7, it's not your plans or my plans we've got to be patient with. No, it's the Lord's plans. Be patient until the Lord returns. Verse 8, the Lord's coming is near. Jesus' plan, second coming, is our time frame. That's our time frame that we're to be patient in. We're not to have the stopwatch on, but to be patient, waiting for him to come when he's ready. It could be any time. Verse 9, interesting, the judge is standing at the door. It's interesting, just through the door up the, just through that door, Jesus is standing waiting for God to give him the green light. So we must use our time wisely. Got to be ready for him. We've got to patiently persevere through trials. No good being impatient in a trial, is it? We must be patient with one another as we struggle with life as God's refugees. You ask Todd, patience with his church family is one of his biggest challenges. Loves you, love you, loves you all, but sometimes you'll test his patience. And guess what? Sometimes he'll test yours. That's the way it goes. Impatience is a human trait. So James wants to teach us about patience, and he uses three examples. The farmer, the Old Testament prophet, and a man called Job. Three great examples. The farmer, verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop patiently, waiting for the autumn and spring rains. I used to be a farmer a long time ago. I know some of you here are. Um, A farmer's life revolves around a cycle of life that most of us would not put up with. That is, their livelihood, their valuable crop, depends completely on something they have no control over. The land and the rain and time. Whether they like it or not, they have to be patient. They have to wait for the autumn rains, so the crop. Then the spring rains to finish the crop. They have to wait for the land to yield. No control over any of it. When you think about it, there can be nothing dumber Nothing dumber than an impatient farmer. What, what's the point of being impatient when you know it's going to take eight months for your crop to grow or whatever, however long it takes? It's just stupid. Farmers have to be patient. James is saying that's the Christian life. We are to be patient and wait while things that are beyond our control take their course. You need perseverance to be patient, don't you? We learned about that yesterday. And we can be patient because we know the character of the one who is in control. Verse 11 says the Lord is full of compassion 
and mercy. He doesn't desert us while we're being patient. No, he's compassionate and merciful. He's with us. He answers our prayers. We're to be patient to wait for the Lord's return. We're to be patient with one another and not grumble, it says, against one another when we don't meet each other's expectations. We're great at grumbling, aren't we? Like we're a community, we're a family. What do families do? They always have a go at each other because they know they can get away with it. Guess what God's family does? They have a go at each other because we know we can get away with it. You know what? Your friends, when they come to church, they don't need you grumbling about them. They've had a hard week. They might be starting to wander off the path. Guess what they need you to be? They need you to be patient with them. And guess what you need them to be with you? Patient. You've had a hard week. Not grumble. Be patient. So patience means waiting for God to work things out according to his will and waiting for each other to grow and come through that trial. So like a farmer, the Old Testament prophets, patience means persevering through struggles and trials just like the Old Testament prophets. Verse 10, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. The Old Testament prophets were like us. Think about it. They were people placed in their communities to bear witness to the Lord, to speak the word of the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what they did. Like us, the Old Testament prophets looked back to what God had had done and they looked forward to what? To the coming of the Messiah. They looked back to what God had done and they looked forward to the first coming of the Messiah. Right? We look back to what God's done and we look forward to the second coming of the Messiah. We're in the same boat as Jeremiah and Isaiah. History shows that anyone who will do that, anyone who will clearly, uncompromisingly speak the word of the Lord will suffer because of it. And the prophets are a great example. At the end of the chapter, as we read, James mentions Elijah, an Old Testament prophet. Elijah preached against the wicked king Ahab and his even more wicked wife Jezebel. And as a result, he was hated, he was hunted. Lived a hard life. But James' point about the prophet's example, about Isaiah's example, is that we look back at their lives and we count them as blessed because they patiently persevered. So what James is saying is... um, Do you know Elijah's story? All that he went through and then that that great uh, event on Mount Carmel where he has, there's the battle of the gods, you know, the living God with Baal. So that was the end of an incredibly difficult time for Elijah. Now I draw encouragement from Elijah. I look back and I want to be like him, don't you? I want to stand up and be counted. I wouldn't mind doing that. That party trick on the mountain, eh? that was pretty good. <laughs> Sorry, it's not a party trick, but it was just pretty good. But I, I draw inspiration 
from Elijah. So we look back and take courage and learn his patience, from his patience and his uh, persevering faith. We know that his suffering was worth it. We want to be like him. But James is saying to us, you can't thank God for Elijah and then give up yourself. You can't thank God for his persistence, his patience, his perseverance and then just decide, no, no, I'm not going to be patient. No, we've got to learn from his example. Um, He's saying make sure that you're patient in the face of difficulty so that those who live around you can look at you and go, wow, look at the way. I know the, the, the rotten circumstances they're going through at the moment. Look at the way they're handling that. I learn from that. That encourages me to do the same thing. Right? Are you, by your patience, an example and encouragement to others the way the old testament prophets were for us can i say if you're an impatient christian and you won't put up with anything you will inspire no one you will be an example to no one you will encourage no one what you'll do is actually encourage them to go off like you do patience so important Then James takes us to Job, verse 11. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, you know Job's story, most people will. Extremely godly, wealthy man. But one by one, he had everything taken from him. His livelihood, his whole business ruined, his children, then his health. And it went on and on and on and on. And Job was patient. Uh, We're told that in all this Job did not sin or or um, charge God with wrongdoing. But do you know how Job's story ends? James picks up on that. He ends being blessed by God. And James is saying to us, you know what? You might be going through a trial. Be patient because you know what? You're going to end up being blessed by God. God is compassionate and merciful. One day you're going to get to go and be with the Lord. And you'll look back and you'll think, gee, I'm glad I kept going. Gee, I'm glad I kept going. This really is worth it. But until then... What have we got to do? We've got to be patient because you're not in control. Patient with one another because we're all frustrating in some way, aren't we? Just say you're not and someone will come and say, yes, you are. <laughs> um, patient so that we'll be a blessing to others. Patient because you know um, and trust in God's compassion and mercy. So Patience. Then he comes to prayer. James uh, was known as a great prayer. So much so, I don't know if you know this, but he, he earned the nickname Camel Knees. And this is how it came about. I thought I'd read it to you. Um, it's attributed to him by a man in church history named Hegesippus. 
I don't like Bruce, but I'm glad I'm not called a Gesippus. Um, And this is what he said. He said, James frequently entered the temple alone and was frequently found situated upon his knees, asking forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard after the manner of a camel. (laughs) He was on his knees, see? Camel knees. James was a man of prayer and he wants us to be praying And he wants us to be praying about everything. When you think about it, prayer is the necessary companion of patience, isn't it? If you're looking forward to the compassionate, you know, merciful God, and you're really struggling, what are you going to do? You're going to talk to God. He's the one in control, and he's your father. Well, prayer is the subject of verses 13 to 18. It's mentioned in every verse. And James's point is that we are to pray about everything and as I hope you'll see, it is uh, praying when you're weary for the weary, praying when you're weak for the weak. Just follow along. Verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Same word used to describe the trouble the prophets had. So any kind of trouble, let them pray. Is anyone happy? Happy for all sorts of reasons. Life's going well. Your Christian life's on track. You're coping with your difficulties well. You're happy for whatever reason. You, you know, girlfriend said she'd marry you. I don't know, whatever, you know. Um, let them sing songs of praise. Literally, sing a psalm to God. Anyway, pray in a praiseworthy manner. Pray praise, that's what it's saying. 14, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. See, James is saying pray about everything, bad times, good times. Times when your double-mindedness is back in full force and sin has taken over. Ask people to pray with you. Prayers of confession to God and one another. Pray, pray, pray. And if you're not a very good prayer, you know how you change that? Start praying. It's not, it's not some magic kind of thing that some people have and you don't. It's a habit in life you've got to start developing. Why? God's compassionate, he's merciful, he's your father, he's listening. But verses 14 to 16 are verses shrouded in controversy over the years. Okay? Around the whole healing deal. Now, I don't believe that they're that, dif- they're that difficult, actually, so I want to take some time now and show you what I think they mean. I want to show you how they fit into James' theme of wisdom for double-minded believers, wisdom for people who are struggling in their Christian life. But I want to nail my colours to the mast. I'm convinced that verses 14 and 15 are not talking about physical healing. They're talking about spiritual healing They're talking about dealing with sin, with weakness, with weariness in the Christian life. 
They're not about fixing physical sickness, but about bringing a wandering, double-minded Christian back to single-mindedly following Jesus, which is what the last two chap- uh, verses of the chapter are about. But can I say this? I don't want you to get me wrong. I pray all the time for people who are sick. I believe in praying for sick people. And I, I bet I bet, if we went around the room now, we could all tell of incredible answers to prayer for people who were unwell uh, even you know there's, there's people at Orange who they've been written off, they were dying I went to visit them because that was the last time I'd see them and God brought them back to health so um, I pray for sick people but I can, can I tell you the reason I pray for sick people is verse 11 right because of God's mercy and compassion, not because of verses 14 to 16. And, and I want to um, help you uh, see what I mean. Now, I'm, I'm always hesitant to, to, to do what I'm about to do with a Bible passage. I think this, this chap, there's a few passages in the Bible that are, that are like this, that our translators translated them in a context and that becomes a traditional way they're translated but, and there's a reason for that but as you go on and you, you um, it, it's okay to think hard, go back to the original language, the Greek New Testament and, and, um, and think into it. Translators are not um, without error, only God's word is, okay? So I want, I, want you to sh- I want you to see what I, I've, I see here. So I want to ask two questions of the passage. I hope, I hope you're all, everyone's tired, but I want you to concentrate. I want to ask two questions of the passage. What do the words mean in the original? What do they mean? And then how does the context help us? That's pretty much how you work out any translation thing, okay? First, the words that are translated in the NIV, which most people use as sick, and that's not vomit, that's sick. You know, that's sick people, okay? Um, in verse 14 and 15, there are two different words that are used. The word in verse 14 is uh, for sick is asthenio. Okay, asthenio. This is not the most commonly word used for sickness in the Gospels. In the other New Testament books, asthenio is 99% of the time I kid you not, 99% of the time translated as weak, not sick. A couple of examples, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in asthenio, in weakness. Right? Romans 14.1, as for the one who is weak, asthenio, in faith welcome him. Hebrews 4.15, it says... Um, says of Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. See, weaknesses and temptation. Sickness doesn't work there, does it? So second, the word translated in sick, uh, as sick in verse 15 is a different word again. This time it's chemnonta from the word chemno, which means weary. The only other place that I can find in the New Testament uh, that this word is used is Hebrews 12 verse 3. 
Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the two words translated as sick are just as easily, and I think more rightly, weak and weary. And then when you think about uh, the context of the, of the, the book... They fit, that fits much more naturally into the letter because um, James is writing to people who have a hard life. Yeah, they, they might get sick like everyone else, but they will be un- like refugees are uniquely weak and weary, aren't they? All right? So third, the phrase in the New Testament... Uh, in the NIV, in verse 15, that says the prayer offered in faith will make him well. It's, it is interpreted in the ESV as saved, will save him. And that's because that, what, that's what the word means. The word is sozo, and it means saved. Now, guess what? James uses the word six times in his letter. And every time that unambiguously refers to being saved, to salvation. Just look down at verse 20 in the passage. Turning back a sinner from the error of their ways will save them. Sozo. Save their soul from death. Exactly the same word. Fourth, the word healed in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, that word in the New Testament depends entirely on its context and can mean any kind of healing, physical or spiritual. But in the letters in the New Testament, it's used to describe spiritual healing. Um, 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross... So it's about bearing sin so that he might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Talking about spiritual healing. So that's a bit about the words. And uh, come with any questions about this that you have for me. But but two more things. The anointing with oil. Um, And finally, the context of James. Anointing with oil. Um, You know, there's no real support for the idea that it's therapeutic. Someone's sick, tip some oil on them, rub it in and make them feel better. Well, it might. But there's actually no no historical support for that. Um, In the Bible, there are 78 occasions when someone is anointed with oil. Okay, I've done the work, counted them through. (laughs) 78 occasions... The vast majority are what Douglas Moo calls a physical act with a symbolic significance. It happens when someone is consecrated, they're set apart for the service of God. You know, they they were just a normal Jew or they weren't serving God. Uh, They come to a conviction about their life before God. Uh, They decide to serve God, then they're set apart, they're anointed with oil to mark the occasion. They go, yeah, we remember that day that you were anointed, and they serve the Lord. And I think that fits in the passage. I think that's what James is talking about. It's to mark an occasion. So the context. 
Immediately before this passage and after, James's concern is the spiritual life and walk of his readers. Patience in suffering, persevering through trial, turning back to God for grace, um, for mercy and compassion and wisdom. Then after this bit in chapter 20, uh, 19, verse 19 to 20, bringing back the wandering sinner from sin so that they will be saved. The whole letter is taken up with James' concern that we double-minded believers will persevere in our faith. So you see, it makes perfect sense in these closing paragraphs. He helps us think about how to deal with our weakness, how to deal with our weariness, how to deal with our sin. This context is where the meaning of the words most naturally take us. But then, the real clincher for me is the example of Elijah. Verses 17 to 18. I've mentioned him before because James mentioned him. So you see, if James is, has physical healing in his mind, right, then one of the greatest examples of physical healing in the Old Testament is in 1 Kings 17, where Elijah brings back to life the dead son of a widow. Don't know if you know the story. Pretty dramatic stuff. One of the greatest miracle healings in the Old Testament. But that's not where James takes us when he talks about Elijah. Now he takes us to chapter 18 of 1 Kings. The great, that great scene on Mount Carmel where Elijah and the Lord take on the prophets of Baal. That's the incident James is referring to. And the issue at hand in chapter 18 is Israel's double-mindedness. Did you know that? In fact, in the midst of... You go back to uh, Elijah's words in uh, 1 Kings 18. In the midst of Elijah's speech on Mount Carmel, this is what he says to, to Israel. He says, How long will you go limping between two opinions? In other words, how long will you continually be double-minded? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if it's Baal, then follow him. He's saying, cut it out, you double-minded Jews. Right? That's the issue. In James' words, how long here yeah, will be double-minded? To bring Israel to its knees and acknowledge God, Elijah had prayed for a drought, and the drought had lasted years. Then on Mount Carmel, he prays for rain and God answers his prayers. Elijah's concern for Israel is the same as James's concern for us. Spiritual uh, sin, spiritual sickness, spiritual waywardness. This is so obvious, obviously at the centre of James' concern. Verse 15, and I'm going to read it with, with um, the words that I think most... Um, aptly apply verse 15 the prayer offered in faith will save the weary person if they have sinned they'll be forgiven therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed spiritually the prayer of a righteous person is powerful effective and verse 20 remember this whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sin that's what James is saying. 
James wants each one of us to be so serious about our sin, our spiritual weakness, our double-mindedness that we will, verse 14, ask our trusted leaders, our elders, to come and pray with us. Ask them to pray for you and if and when you do um, get that serious about your sin, mark that occasion by being anointed with oil. So you know what, this is a day of rededication to the Lord. My cry for help, my confession of sin, my, the prayer of my, my spiritual leaders is a day I want marked. I, I don't want anyone to forget this. Tip some oil on my noggin and rub it in, will you? That's what I think he's saying. Make that day a day of repentance, renewal and remembrance. But notice what he's saying. He's saying you do this together. You're wandering off in sin. Don't sit there and stew and wonder what on earth you're going to do. Ring Todd or ring, you know, ring Doug or ring, ring some trusted old brother and say, come in. And guess what? You know what they're going to do when you turn up? They're going to pray for you and they're going to admit that they sin too. They're not going to say, oh, how could you possibly do that? I've never sinned in my life. They're not going to do that. They're going to, they're going to pray for you. We do it together. See, we've got to stop acting as though we're strong and admit that we're weak. We've got to stop pretending we don't struggle with sin when we do. We need to acknowledge our sins and confess them to one another. That's what James says. And we can do that because we are all in the same boat. We're all weak. We're all weary. We're all sinners. We can do that because we're all brothers and sisters. We're part of the same family. Families are robust, aren't they? You have a blue, you have a barney, but hey, you forgive your makeup. We can do that because with God there is always more grace. So there should and will be with us more grace. And guess what happens when we do that? Changes the dynamics of the church. We become more patient with one another. See, if I'll confess my sins to you, you'll be more ready to confess your sins to me, won't you? Who's going to take the first step? There have been wonderful, wonderful moments over the years in my time as a pastor when people have come to me and been that honest. Confessed their sin, we've prayed. And their lives have changed immeasurably. The only thing I haven't done is pour some oil on them. <laughs> there have been moments when I've gone to a brother and told him my struggle with something. I was, I was always treated graciously and so I was helped and changed by their gracious humility. The family Christian life is what James is driving us towards here. So we've been talking about praying about everything as a family. Last point, persevering together. 
I've mentioned the personal togetherness of this passage. Everyone is on the same level, brothers, sisters, family confession to one another. We're all in this together and James finishes by telling us that we must persevere in this together. Just look at 19 and 20 again. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now I want you to notice in these last two verses that it is not the elder, it is not the pastor. No, it is verse 19, someone. It is verse 20, whoever. This is a corporate responsibility. Do you see that my perseverance, my weakness, my weariness, my waywardness is your concern? And your perseverance, your weakness, your weariness, your waywardness is my concern, the concern of everyone else in this room. Now, there'll be natural connections that will help you work that out, but you're not alone and we're not individuals. We're responsible. So here this story, I think it drives home, a story told about four people. Their names are everybody, somebody, anybody and nobody. Right? There was an important job to be done and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. In the end, everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Now, I started the talk by saying, can you think of someone who's drifted away? Did everyone sit around and say, somebody will talk to them? James is saying, no, 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 not, not somebody. You. James wants everybody here to take responsibility for anybody who isn't here because they could be wandering off to go and find them, bring them back and save their soul from eternal hell. You realise that's where it ends. We must not wait because the Lord's coming is near. The judge is standing at the door. Everyone will meet Jesus either as saviour or judge. We've got to go and get him and remind him that he's saviour, not just the judge. James wants us to persevere patiently and prayerfully, but he knows that we can only do it together. Not as individuals. We've got to do it as a family together. So my last word to you on this weekend is James' last word. Do the Christian life together, patiently and prayerfully, persevere together until the Lord returns. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person. So consider yourself invited to be with us. 